0: Some of my favorite summer memories um, are of my mom packing my trunk for camp, for uh, summer camp. We spent a couple of days making sure we got everything together, so much stuff. I love the slow-paced talks we had as we packed, but did you ever relate to this? As a kid, it it seemed like mommy had too many reminders. Um, Especially my first year of camp, I felt she overdid the instruction. So many extras, so many backups. I just wanted to throw all the stuff in and move on, yet Mom knew better. And I was really glad for all our prep work once camp got underway. When everyone else's clothes were wet uh, for the day because of an early rain shower and there's no time to go change at camp, I was dry because Mom had forced her little tiny poncho into my backpack. We spent hours when I was at camp aiming our flashlights up through the campfire smoke of the campfire and pretending that the flashlight beams were lightsabers. And when all the other guys had to quit, I was able to keep going because of those silly batteries that mom put in my backpack and I put the extra batteries in and I was able to keep being Darth Vader. I mean uh, Luke Skywalker. Surely I was a good guy. Anyway, everything I needed was handy. I always enjoyed Camp Moore because of my mom's preparation. Now, I thought about all that. All that came to mind as I read Philippians chapter 3. You see, Paul has a very personal chat with the Philippians here in chapter 3. He packs a lot of stuff into this trunk, precisely so these Christians are prepared for all the challenges that they're going to face ahead. Open your Bible, Philippians chapter 3. Let's see what God has packed into our trunk for this morning. Let's read verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a protection for you. The big idea is summarized there in the notes inside your worship guide. you got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. On the left-hand side, you see rejoice in the Lord. Paul writes specifically to protect the brethren. And what is the nature of this protection? Rejoicing. Rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard for one's soul. That's why I wrote a book about gratitude. When one is grateful, when we rejoice in the Lord, you know what it does? It acts like a perfect poncho against all the rainy weather of life. Rejoicing is a protection for us. Author Sam Walker noted the power of rejoicing in the Lord. He wrote an article, really interesting article, uh, from his book, The Captain's Class. The article is called Gratitude is Good for Business. Here's what he said. By year two... As William Bradford's long-odds startup finally stepped back from the brink of oblivion, he decided to hold a mandatory three-hour staff meeting. This wasn't a party, an operational review, or hackathon. The only item on the boss's agenda that morning was to oversee a collective expression of gratitude, or as he termed it, thanksgiving. Now, William Bradford, of course, was the governor of Plymouth Colony, a poorly financed agricultural venture run by English separatists that gave birth to a fairly successful economic enterprise called America. Bradford shows us that Thanksgiving is really a management story. It's a case study in how extraordinary leaders build happy, productive teams. Close quote. That is exactly what Paul is doing. He is managing the Philippians wisely, teaching them to manage their lives well. And giving thanks to God, rejoicing in the Lord is very important protection. And by the way, it's not just as individuals or work teams that rejoicing safeguards us. The the same thing is true in our relationships. For example, think of a marital relationship. Uh, Jennifer Wallace wrote this, a growing body of research finds that couples who regularly express appreciation for each other, even for minor things, enjoy a stronger, more satisfying, and committed bond. Close quote. So, Let's get our ponchos on, shall we? Raise your hand, if you would, and tell me something for which you can rejoice in the Lord. What is something for which you can praise God this morning? Raise your hand, and when I point to you, you can share it with the group, okay? What is something for which you can rejoice in the Lord? Raise your hand. Yes, what? My wife of 45 years, very good. And you'd have said that even if she weren't sitting next to you. That's very nice. Uh, very good. Who else? What do we got? What can you, get, what can you thank God for? What do you rejoice in the Lord about today? Yes. Your four children, awesome. Excellent. And they aren't sitting next to you. That's very good. Yeah, oh, they are. Okay, yeah, all right. Well, that's all right. We'll still count it. Yeah, it's good. He meant it, kids, I promise. What else? What do we got? What are you thankful for? Yes? You get, you get to be at church. First Sunday in a while, you're not flying out somewhere, right? Isn't that awesome? Come on, give me some more. What can you rejoice in the Lord about? What are you grateful for? Yes? New life in Jesus. New life in Jesus. Amen. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. What do you got back there? Loving mother and father, well said. Isn't that a sweet thing? That is way cool. Do you, are you in trouble? Oh, they're not here this hour. Okay, great, that's awesome. Um, Now, before we press on, two textual notes to clean up. Thank you, those are great. Two textual notes to clean up. You see, finally, uh, I skipped over this. Verse one begins, finally. That doesn't actually mean the beginning of the end of Paul's message. There's a whole lot more to say. In the Greek text, the word we render, finally, literally means just a transition. It means toward the rest. Um, I don't know if you've noticed but evidently a a number of preachers have adopted this kind of Greek usage Um, whenever they say finally they're really only about halfway through and they're merely transitioning toward the rest side the other textual issue is again you see that one now there's two possibilities to again I don't know which it is. Um, <clears throat> one is when he says, write you again, he's referring to an earlier letter that we don't, we don't possess, uh, that happened in Corinth, we know because of what Paul says, there were other letters to the Corinthians, we don't know in Philippians for sure if that's the case, it could be, the other possibility is he's referencing conversation they've had before about rejoicing, uh, Epaphroditus and Timothy did a lot of truck back and forth between uh, where Paul was and where the Philippians were, and so it could have just been conversation, either way Paul mentions rejoicing. Look, look here, chapter 4, he mentions rejoicing yet again. And in chapter 4, he adds, again I say. This is kind of an inside joke, uh, a reminder that this is really important. It, it's like he's laughing at himself as he pushes this most important point, yet Again, you got it? This is the big theme from God through Paul. He, he harps on rejoicing like my mom on batteries and ponchos, right? It is, it is useful. This is important. This is what he's known for. Rejoice in the Lord. All God's people said? All right, now read verse 2. Verse 2. Watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul warns Christians that false teachers are dangerous We must watch out for that pack of wild dogs. By the way, this is incredibly biting. Um, Jews often called Gentiles dogs. They viewed them as ones who were only worthy to receive the scraps from the Hebrew table. But here is God's apostle completely turning the tables. Now, he's not describing all Jews. He's describing Judaizing legalists. He calls Judaizers, these legalists, and he's describing them to this predominantly Gentile church at Philippi. And he says, the Jews actually, the legalistic people, they're actually the dogs. And some Bible scholars think this could be describing something even more biting, literally. Um, In Macedonia, in the Macedonian highlands uh, around Philippi, apparently there's some evidence that very few dogs were kept as pets or or for work which was somewhat rare in the Mediterranean world. In the first century, lots of dogs were kept in Israel and Egypt and Rome. Uh, In Italy, they kept them for work animals, for pets, but apparently not in Macedonia. There, dogs were scary. They roamed mainly in wild packs uh, with big pointy teeth hunting and tearing and biting. Now, that image of this hunting pack of dogs That really fits. Think about it. That fits the tribal mentality that always, you know this, right? It always exists among people who are dedicated to pushing an agenda of legalistic falsehood. They are always looking for the next person to devour. It was true then, and it's true now. The question is not who let the dogs out. The question is, are you prepared to deal with them? A few times I have experienced people very angry over my teaching of Scripture. Now, occasionally that's because I'm a flawed human and I said something inaccurate or unkind. And in those situations, I just apologize and ask for forgiveness. But more often, the anger comes from a particular, some particular limited identity group who were appalled that I would defy their threats and go ahead and teach what God says. You see, like the Judaizers, these folks have made up their own rules beyond Scripture. That's what all legalists do. And because they've made up their own rules, this is wild but true, they see themselves as really holy. They see themselves as holding the moral high ground, and thus they believe themselves absolutely correct in treating anybody who would dare disagree with them as deplorable. Right? This is an increasingly problematic issue in 21st century America, but thanks to Philippians, you and I can be prepared. When the hate mail arrives, we have a good idea what to do. We listen, we pray, love, engage, and stand our ground on the text. And by the way, I will testify that that's what I do, and each time, every time, it has worked out beautifully. Paul continues his colorful description of these false teachers by saying, watch out for evil workers. Something really important to note here. You get this, Paul tellingly describes their character of evil, which is inbuilt to humanity. He is not commenting on their deeds. All right, in the original text, it's even more clear. These are evil workers. These are not necessarily workers of evil. An evil worker could be a very good worker. An evil worker could be a really hard worker. He's, just, he's evil inside. A worker of evil could be a sweet little kid, could be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, but what he's doing at that moment is bad. Uh, Richard Melek puts it this way. These Jews, <clears throat> oriented to salvation by the good works of the law, which is hilarious. Absolutely no one is saved by the law but that was their mindset, oriented to salvation by the good works of the law, had pride in their exemplary lives, probably like Paul of the past, they considered themselves blameless, in reality however, what they supposed to be good works were not, describing their character, not their activity, Paul warned against their zealous activities, and that's the difference, listen, evil workers may be zealous, but they don't understand, they don't understand their innate sinfulness, you know what that does, when you don't understand your innate sinfulness, it makes you blind to your own sin. It makes you blind to the pervasiveness of sin in the world. And it makes you blind to the, to the very real problem of unintended consequences. That's the situation here. Beware this. It inevitably leads to legalism, which is why Paul finishes verse 2 saying, Watch out for the legalists. Now, legalists in Paul's day, they divorced the sign of Abraham from faith. And so they made circumcision a work. It's just merely a cutting. In fact, Paul doesn't even call it circumcision. It's mutilation. Listen, it's mutilation when someone tries to use any work to please God without faith. He's not saying circumcision is wrong. He's saying that no work of God it is no work of God when we use something, when we use anything to try and earn our justification. Discipline is great. Tradition can be fine. But legalism, trying to save myself by my work, that is evil. It is, it is an evil work of the wild dogs. And the seriousness of this warning is polished in some very, very clever writing here. For poetic stamp, look at this. The, the Spirit inspires Paul to use three K-words for the false teachers. Uh, dogs is Qon. Uh, Qion is any kind of canine. It, it usually means a wild one. Uh, evil is kakos. That's someone who is internally ugly. They, they, are, they are bad in character. It's the opposite of agathos, uh, the, the good word in, for character in Greek. And mutilate the flesh. Mutilate the flesh It's one word in the text. Uh, katotome, uh, to, to cut. Katotome, to cut the flesh or cut organs. So, so look at the rhythm here for memorizing. Qon, kakos, katotome, Qion, kakos katotome, beware this. And that idea of katotome, that false circumcision, that springs Paul into the next big idea. Read read verse 3. For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. As we listed atop the right side of our notes, true teachers are cause for joy. True teachers of God's Word are the real circumcision. Now, Think about this. How can that be that they cause joy? Because if you listen, have you noticed this? If you listen, the legalists in this world, they are always very loud and very confident that these other people must be wrong. How can true teachers cause joy? It's because true teachers understand the Abrahamic covenant. Look up here, Romans chapter 4, verse 11. He, Abram, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by what, everybody? By faith, while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And... He became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but also follow the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. Look, the point in life always has been and always will be faith. Look, faith, belief, faith. It's all about believing God. That's where righteousness comes from. As, as promised in Genesis, all the world can be blessed through Abraham's covenant. It is a covenant of faith, and it doesn't matter whether one is circumcised or not. It's fine either way, but trust in God and only trust. That's what matters. This is why Jesus went out of his way so many times in his ministry to remind people that he fulfills Moses' law. Right, The law of Moses was always intended to be a binary temporary covenant not so abraham's covenant of salvation by god's grace through faith moses covenant has run its course it's still scripture oh my goodness still shows us a great deal of wisdom and conviction but it was and is merely a tutor to lead people to trust in messiah jesus that's why that's why the bastardized legalism that comes from false teachers that's why it's so burdensome because it's false it doesn't fit the law is a burden that no one but Jesus could carry. And that explains why, why true teachers are, are givers of joy. They lift that burden. They, they lift us up. Far from being dangerous, they are life-giving. Look at the great bullet points in verse 3. Every one of these is contrasted with the false teachers. Look, the true teachers, they serve by the Spirit of God. They're not like the dogs. They're not empowered by mob anger They're not looking for the next person with whom to disagree. They they trust that God will empower them and God will accomplish what concerns them. I think we can possibly picture the difference of these two by using automobiles from cartoons of my childhood. Okay? Tell me, which is faster? Barney Rubble's foot-powered car or George Jetson fusion-powered flying machine? Which one is faster? Which has more power? Jetsons. It's the Jetsons, right? All the way In the same way, when I yield to the Spirit of God, I move something I cannot do when I'm working very hard in my own flesh. Every believer in Jesus has the Spirit. All have access to the inexhaustible fusion of God's empowerment. Now, we can dig in our feet. We can can leave the prayerful attitude of reliance upon God. We can try to move forward in our own natural strength, but we cannot and will not fly unless we serve by the Spirit. All God's people said, Secondly, the true teachers, they boast in Christ Jesus. The evil workers, they boast in their works. They take great pride in the things they do, many of which seem very impressive, right? But the true teachers, they, they boast in only one thing, and that is Jesus. Recognizing their absolute unworthiness and the miracle of being saved by Jesus' sacrifice, the true teachers realize there is nothing worthy of pride except for God's shocking love for us. David Wade of our pulpit team really brought this home to my heart when he wrote me this. He wrote me this week and said, Wayne, the Lord has convicted me more and more recently in pointing out the areas of my life in which I boast. Sadly, some of these are good things, such as leading the Thursday night Bible study. It's humbling to have the Lord reveal how much I do for him. is really about bolstering my image of myself as a good man. In truth, we know that everything is from the Lord, and we have nothing in which to boast except the love of God for us close quote, well said. And that, friends, comes from one of the godliest saints that I have ever known. Surely the same is true for us. So look up here, ask yourself right now, in what do I boast? If you were to take pride in something other than Jesus, what might it be? Let me, let me show you four categories, okay? Let's do this. If, if you will, raise your hand if any of these broad categories contains an arena where you have a potential to boast, okay? Um, your family, your kids, your parents, your spouse, siblings, extended family. If you have a tendency to boast about family, raise your hand. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, achievements, think about, think about trophies and work accomplishments and test scores and victories and awards if you have a tendency to, to boast in those things, all right, sure. Uh, good deeds, this one's very popular among Christians, serving, sacrificing, helping, giving, protecting, if you, if you could have a tendency to boast about those things, all right. And then finally, this one, it sounds weird, but this is actually very, very popular. Boasting in your hurts. Uh, think about your pains, your diseases, your disabilities, your surgeries, the bad calls against your team, persecutions real or supposed or imagined. Uh, raise your hand if you have a tendency to boast in your hurts. Yeah, all right. I, I, I understand and relate to all those. But we must find our pride only in Jesus. listen. If I don't find my pride only in Jesus, I will never be a real cause for joy. You, you know what will happen? We will start to resemble the false teachers. Think about it. The false teachers, this is their pride and joy. This is all they have. And it's never enough. It is never, ever enough. Speaking of the false teachers, remember they ended up in legalism. They trusted the greatness of human nobility. What a joke. By contrast, the true teachers do not trust their own flesh. You see that? Now, that is not to say that human ability isn't important to develop. It is. But we must stay aware that even our best discipline is weighted down with fleshly error until Jesus returns and makes all things new. Remember, evil workers may be zealous, right? They may be zealous, but... They don't understand their innate sinfulness. Remember, this makes them incredibly dangerous. It blinds them to their own sin, to the pervasiveness of sin, and the reality of unintended consequences every time they come up with their perfect solutions, whatever they may be of the weak. By contrast, the truthful people are very wary of their own sin. They're quite aware of unintended consequences. It, it's not that the healthy Christian doesn't trust himself so much as that he trusts Jesus completely. And that's the rub. Listen, if I trust myself more than Jesus, and most people do, if I trust myself more than Jesus, I cannot serve by God's Spirit. I will not be wise about my own flesh. I will boast in something other than my Lord. One of my favorite high ropes course elements is uh, the platform jump. Any of you ever done a platform jump? Raise your hand if you've done it. Okay, platform jump is where a person uh, who is completely safe by virtue of a safety harness, person climbs up a very tall and very narrow pole and gets to a tiny platform at the top of that pole. Now, when she arrives at the top of the pole, she looks, and there is always a trapeze right there, but there's a hitch. What's the hitch? Anybody know? Yeah, she's got she's to jump. to You have to leap. They always are built in such a way, and if not, we used to pull them up if the person was really tall. They are built in such a way that it is impossible to stay on the platform and, and reach out and grab the traffic. Remember, the person is totally safe, but what does she have to do? What does she have to do, everybody? She's got to leap, and when she leaps, she gets it. That is what wise, godly people do. They jump their trust from self to Jesus alone, because righteousness outside Jesus is actually dangerous. It's actually dangerous. Read, read the next section. Uh, let's start with verse three to get the, the context. For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boasting in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh, although Paul says, I once also had confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless, but everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. Paul's inheritance and achievements are, they're really impressive. In fact, humanly, they are astounding. The, the ones he doesn't mention here, he brings up in other texts. They add to the magnificence. Um, for example, he was, he was born here in Tarsus. He doesn't mention that in this text, but he does in others. He was a, of a Hebrew family, but they were Roman citizens. They were well off. They could have been, we're not know for sure, they could have been very wealthy. It was certainly a very wealthy town, right on one of the major trade crossroads of the world. And Paul attended what uh, we would call Tarsus University. And there he became an expert, and I do mean expert, at Greek, <clears throat> at Greek rhetoric and Roman law, an expert in the law. In fact, they didn't have doctorates then, but if they had, he would probably have been a double doctorate person or more. He was, quite frankly, a genius. He then came to Jerusalem to engage more deeply in his Hebrew heritage. He became a Pharisee. He studied under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. According to the pharisaical use of the law, Shaul, by the way, that was his given name, was Saul, Uh, Saul was blameless. He He became so zealous for Judaism that he began hunting down Jews who had begun to believe in Jesus as the Messiah until the resurrected Jesus appeared to him, and then everything changed. When the literal scales fell from his eyes, Saul, to be Paul, finally understood. He understood all that stuff that was gain, that was so important to him. It actually was a burden. It, it's something that Jean Rostaut captures beautifully in a painting. Look up here. I want you to see this painting. Um, in this painting, here's Paul. Ananias is praying for him, and the scales are falling from his eyes. But right here, this is the most significant part of the painting, if you can see it. The... Um, There's a bunch of very expensive and very heavy armor and clothing on the ground. That's really well done. All that stuff that was so important to him was actually a burden. Far from moving his life forward, that supposed perfection that he thought he had merely blinded him to truth. When God removed the scales through Ananias, Saul to be Paul really saw for the first time. I can somewhat relate. I thought I was a good boy. Everyone told me so, all the time. I was good. I was smart. I was athletic. I was a Native American, which was becoming cool. I want you to understand the real state of my soul as my mom was packing my trunk for that first summer at camp. Here was was what I thought about the things that matter. I had investigated enough to realize that it it takes way too much faith for a person to be an atheist. I, I, I got that. In fact, I accepted that the only reasonable conclusion was that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's the resurrected Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. I actually knew that was true, or at least I understood it was by far the most rational explanation for a, a great many things. But here's the key. I didn't believe on that Jesus for my own justification before God. I, I trusted myself because, after all, I was a good kid, right? Right? But then that summer at camp, my counselor and I were talking during one of our one-on-one times. And my counselor pulled me aside. His camp name was Stormy, very appropriate. And he said to me, man, you seem like such a nice kid. Too bad you're going to burn in hell. (laughs) Seriously. And it was great because I don't think anything else would have gotten through to me. After I stopped sputtering with shock, I challenged him. I said, oh, yeah, prove it. Prove it. Let's see you prove that. And by golly, he did. He took me to Paul's writing in the book of Romans and we spent that entire week in the book of Romans and he showed me four very important things that all people are sinful and separated from God. I was not a good kid, never had been, never would be on my own. He showed me that Jesus is indeed God the Son. He sacrificed himself for human sin, that he rose from the grave and only by trust in Jesus can someone be saved. In fact, that counselor showed me that by trusting Jesus, we become, and he used this phrase from Romans, children of Abraham. Abraham truly becomes our father. What I had been doing before, that was only empty legalism. Like the apostle, like many of you, I trusted Jesus, and that began the process of me learning to count everything else as loss. Now, that process of counting as loss is paired with a wonderful positive, learning that righteousness from Jesus brings joy. Look at at the next two verses, 8 and 9, verses 8 and 9. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Righteousness from Jesus brings joy. Verse 8 is fantastic. It's really passionate writing. Self-righteousness is seen as the filth it is, and I do mean filth. The word Paul writes from his house arrest in Rome is, uh, is scubalon, we politely translate it filth or rubbish. I mean, scubalone can mean that kind of yuckiness, but not when it's used like this. When it's employed like this, scubalone always means the same thing, animal excrement. That's right, kids, the Apostle Paul used poop in the Bible. And actually, just to be completely honest with you, it is a much more graphic word for poop, one that if you use at home, will get your mouth washed out with soap, okay? I'm not saying you should say the word that Paul used, unless you want to say scubalum, because that's great, and that's kind of fun, but, um, but, but you should certainly understand it, and we all should. Self-righteousness is like doggy do, right? It clings to you like poop in the traction lines of your tennis shoes, right? You know that when you step in poop, and, you d- and, and then that's the day you're out of toothpicks, you know, and it's just stuck in there, and it makes you stink, You smell like a cow patty all day. Paul realizes and he teaches us about the choice that every person must make every day. Do I want to smell like excrement? Am I going to rely on my self-righteousness? Because if I do, I will stink. The alternative is to be washed by God himself. The sweet-scented alternative is righteousness by faith imputed from God. That next year after I went to camp at 11 years old and became a believer in Christ, my mother took me along to visit a friend of hers who was sick. Um, they had a four-year-old boy. Mom suggested, hey, Wayne, take the, take the little guy out and back to play so I can talk to the mom. And I said, okay, cool. So I took him out back. The kid and I had a blast. He was such a fun guy. We walked out back. First thing we saw was this huge dirt pile in their backyard. I said, what is that? He said, that's Mommy's dirt pile. It's for her rose garden, but because she's sick, they can't use it, so it's just sitting there as a pie. I said, well, let's make use of it. He's like, all right. So we ran trucks down the dirt pile. I taught him to play king of the hill, and uh, I let him win a lot, so I rolled down the hill a whole bunch. And, and we had a dirt clod fight. The dirt clods were really soft. They were, it was very nice, and uh, it was great. We had a great time until the moment we walked back inside. <laughs> Both women screamed. And I assured my mom. I was like, Mom, it's going to wash off. It's just dirt. And then I smelled myself for the first time. And as you have probably already realized, it was not a dirt pile. It was manure. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big pile of cow manure. Took a long time for me to get clean in our shower. I think Mom threw those clothes away. I really do. And those ruined clothes are a picture of our souls. We cannot save ourselves. The dirt cannot be removed by us. It must be replaced by new clothing from God, by imputed righteousness. This, this is the light that shines when everything else is proven saw, false. Jesus is indeed the light of the world. He is the Messiah for those who trust Him. They have His righteousness imputed to them. We need to respond to that. We've got two more verses I want us to cover, but let's stop right now. Let's just respond to that right now. Pray with me. Father, I pray for anyone studying with me that has never trusted in Jesus as Savior. And I beg you to let the scales fall from their eyes right now. Friend, listen. You, you cannot cleanse yourself. I mean, just to be polite so that you know You spiritually smell like dog poop. It's stuck in you, just as it is in me and everyone else. But God loves you so much that Jesus, God the Son, came and He died for you. And He rose from the dead. If you trust Him, you can follow Him in everlasting, effervescent, forever life. It's all about belief. Be like Abram. Be like Paul. although I would rarely say this, in this sense, be like me. Trust Jesus as your Savior. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Now, thank you, everybody. This changes everything. You do realize this changes even our life goals. Read read the last two verses we're going to study. 10 and 11. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. As a kid, I grumbled to my mommy when she put those extra heavy D-cell batteries in my kit, but when I could continue to play lightsaber all night, my attitude changed. My goal the next summer was no longer just to throw stuff in and move on. My goal was to enjoy the process because it turns out this mom lady knew best, right? You see that, right? Rejecting my self-righteousness for the excrement it is and turning to God for righteousness in Jesus. That changes how one thinks. It changes our goals. Look at at verse 10 and 11. Very one, number one focus now. What does he say? To know Jesus. Suppose you meet a new person today. They're they're new to you. and, And you chat for a while. And as you walk away, you think, Man, that seemed like a great dude. I'd really like to get to know that guy better. Okay, what do you do? It's not rocket science, right? It's not real difficult. You find ways to spend time together. You invite him, his family, if he has one, hey, you want to go out to lunch? You invite him to your life group. Hey, we've got this life group. You, you'll like it. I mean, a couple of them are weird, but they're really cool, and you need to come with us. And, uh, and you bring him. You take him to your Thursday night poker party. You, whatever. You especially spend time listening to him and talking together. Well, it's, it's no different getting to know Jesus. You spend time with Him. You listen to His Word. You talk to Him. And before long, you really grow in relationship as you realize that He goes with you everywhere. When we accept His righteousness, knowing Jesus becomes our number one goal. Second one follows close behind to know His resurrection life. To know what it means to be an overcomer because I'm in Christ. To know victory and joy because death has no sting for me. Jesus is alive. And the Christian's new goal is to know this reborn life we have in Jesus. A friend of mine is a missionary in China. Knowing that we were studying Philippians, he, a few weeks ago, emailed me a testimony. It's from a, um, a, a young, very successful urban Chinese woman. Uh, he gave her the code name Lola. Let me share with you Lola's testimony about knowing the resurrection life. She writes this. She said, last year I read through Philippians a lot. I want to grow in joy. In the past, I thought joy was knowing how to suck it up or be positive in a hard situation. I wanted to learn that skill. But after I read through Philippians, God helped me get a little taste of Paul's joy while he was in prison. It's not like Paul's happy about it, but he's focused on something else so completely that he doesn't care. His heart is completely not there. His heart is on Jesus' gospel and the Philippians. I like this next part so much I put it in your notes. When Paul heard the gospel is spreading and the Philippians are growing, that's where his joy came from. He's so filled with joy that his surroundings or situation don't even matter. I'm really thankful. God wants me to know him. He's more than happy to help me taste a little bit of what his kingdom feels like, what great joy feels like, what it means. Lola has a wonderful new goal. May we as well, all God's people said. Third change, to experience the fellowship of his suffering. Now, this one seems to make no sense. Who would be happy to suffer? No one. No one with any sense, that is. But but, to know the fellowship of God himself through suffering, that's amazing. I'll just, I'll just tell you, there are many, many people in this room who can tell you of tragedies where they have been blessed beyond measure by God's provision in suffering. Christ's fellowship in suffering is like sunrise in a dark woods. It's like a soft bed when you're exhausted. I know that I ache, I ache over the sufferings of my life. But I wouldn't trade them for anything if it meant I had to lose the close fellowship that I experience with Jesus when I am crying and he is here with me Forever. Final goal for the Christian is to live in light of our coming glory. Uh, Verse 11 apparently is fairly hard to get into English. That's why there's so many translations of those first words. Uh, Some Bibles say, in order that, I will somehow reach the resurrection of the dead. Others say, uh, assuming that, I will attain the resurrection. Others say, by any means. By any means is likely the best translation, and John MacArthur explains why. By any means is best because reflecting his humility, Paul didn't care how God brought it to pass. But longed for death and the fulfillment of his salvation in his resurrected body. And that's why Paul can be so full of joy. He lives in light of our glory to come. And we'll hear more about that glorification next time. For today, just remember the whole context. Okay, keep the whole context in mind. It's all about rejoicing in the Lord righteousness from jesus brings joy which changes everything it even changes our life goals that's why we don't trust righteousness outside jesus it's dangerous it's stinky it makes us act like the false teachers who proliferate in this world we want to be true teachers who are always cause for joy to those around them amen all right so stand up with us and let's rejoice together let's sing